open in your Bibles to the book of Acts and chapter 13. So we had to take a, a break. I've taken a break from our series in the book of Acts um, now. And, well, say taking a break, but we've, we've gone back a few chapters um, to help us uh, reflect as we prepare uh, for a week of, of corporate fasting on the significance, on the the meaning of fasting. And I, and, um, I want to say a few things from um, these short sections in the book of Acts, the one in chapter 13 and second in chapter 14, that um, do form some of the, uh, some of the, the, the few references to the practice of fasting in the, in the New Testament. Um, maybe I should read those chapters um, in your, your hearing. So chapter 13, those verses in your hearing. So chapter 13, verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod, Tetra, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And also in chapter 14 and uh, 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Uh, so those two um, passages give us a snapshot, if you want, of um, something of the practice of fasting. More, more, more to the point, the fact that fasting was practiced uh, in the New Testament church. And um, say a, a few things from those passages shortly. Um, of course, the, the, the main thing is that if we are going to fast as believers, well, with any any anything that we, we do as Christians, any spiritual practice, we want to have biblical a biblical basis for them. Uh, when I was praying in, to open the service, I was asking that, I prayed that God would um, hear us, he would be with us as we invoke him, as we, as we called upon him. It's invocation, it, the, the fact that human beings, us, men and women, on this side of the world, on the earth, we try and make connection with the invisible God of heaven. We try and have fellowship with him. We try and experience him. We want to Want to, want him to hear us, and we want to hear from him. Um, is something that we often take for granted. That is, we we don't ask, how do we? Why do we think that is possible? Or uh, what permission do we have? What to think that we can do that? How do you think that you can call upon God and get God's attention? Um, and the Bible doesn't take that issue for granted either. The Bible is very clear that it is a it's a, it's a special thing for that to happen, for you and I to draw near to God and to know Him and to experience Him. You know, even in the words of 
um, the song that we just sang. God of heaven, by my side. To speak about that. Or, or you will hold me through the night. It's wonderful. It's metaphorical language to a large degree. But it's also very, for the Christians, very true. We believe that you can have God so close. And that God is close. And you can draw near to God. And God can be with you. Uh, so that God's presence is truer than the presence of the next person who's in the room with you. In fact, that it's far more important that God hold you, holds you through the night than anyone else ever does. But with what... How can we have this confidence? Well, it's through revelation. God must reveal to us how we can reach him. You can't by search and find out the Almighty. God must tell us how to approach him. And that is one of the main strands of the scriptures, teaching us how we are to approach God. There is a way to God. Not many ways, not multiple ways, not any way that you can just invent. There is a way. Because God is his own interpreter. Because God doesn't need folks to um, conjure him up. Because God um, God is he's, he is, he's being, he's existence, he's we are the ones um, who must look for him, and he must tell us how we find him. He must reveal himself to us. This is, he reveals his way. And the, the Bible is all about telling us to make sure that we pay close attention and never deviate from the way that God has given us as to how we can seek him. This is how to find me, ultimately, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to the means by which we do that, we must pay attention to what the scriptures say as well. God must reveal how we are to find him. And all too often, especially in an in a, in a age that increasingly lo 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 loves to speak of abstract forms of spirituality, and people want to talk about being spiritual, and people want to talk about, you know, knowing God, but a kind of unknown God. You know, people want to say, I have a relationship with God, but an, an in some, some sort of indiscriminate, undefined relationship with God. People can't wait to introduce things into, into the experience of God that the Bible, for example, gives no legitimacy to, right? People want to do all sorts of things and suggest that it's a way of drawing closer to God, right? Folks will sit around in a circle, light candles, and think of, of and, and create a peaceful atmosphere with incense and suggest that there is something divine about this and that apparently because of the purity of the atmosphere and we light some... Cleanse the air with some incense, and hopefully, in purifying the environment, we will find God. But the Bible gives no license for that, right? Or, or closer to, well, not closer to home, but closer in the sense that some people will say they do this in the name of Christ. Folks get a get a get a, get a, a round of beads and a rosary, they might call it, and 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 they they they, they say their prayers to this practice and suggest that somehow this will help facilitate some kind of close relationship to God. But the Bible gives no uh, instruction for that. So it's an important thing to say, what I'm doing in seeking after God, does it have a biblical basis? I remember a long time ago when I first became a Christian, going to youth groups where they would ask us, have, would have a, and it was quite zealous of them, would have long prayer meetings in the night or whatever, long night meetings. But I remember going to a few where this thing became, I don't know if you say in vogue, but it became a thing where folks would 
tell you to, they'd give us like a big blank, like a piece of cardboard or whatever, and or, or paper, and tell you to, to just draw, to just draw on it. And somehow this will, you know, and that's what you're feeling in. This was meant to be a spiritual exercise. It's nothing of the sort. Where, where is this? Where's this coming from, right? So we can't just make things up as to how we can reach God because it feels spiritual, right? There's, there's scriptures. There's, there's God, God tells us how we're to seek him. And so even in the matter of something like fasting, it's important for us to make sure that what we're doing, we're doing because we know we have uh, explicit biblical um, permission because we know that the Bible, God has said that this is, one of the ways by which, or one of the means by which you are to seek me, is one of the, the, the means by which you may approach me. Um, and so it's important for us to do that. It's, it's all well and good us saying that we are embarking on an act of fasting, and we are by God's grace. Um, but it's important for us to understand the biblical basis for this. Because after all, it's not just Christians who fast, by the way. Many other faiths have fasting incorporated into their practices. So it's important for us to make sure that we know that what we're doing, we're doing in the name of Jesus um, and according to the word of God. And although it's not especially detailed, those two accounts in the book of Acts do speak, I think, quite importantly to the practice of fasting for the Christian. And I'll show you why. I think especially in our day, um, they might be quite helpful, insightful on instructing us as to... Um, whether fasting has a place in the life of Christians today and, and, and what fasting might mean for us um, as New Testament believers. And so let me draw your attention to that. Let me suggest that there are uh, suggest three things that I think uh, Acts 13, Acts chapter 14, maybe the, the entirety of the book of Acts, in its, now it is, it's not, there's not a lot of references to fasting in the book of Acts, uh, but, but there are these dispersed references, and I think, what, what might it teach us then about what to do with fasting and how we should approach this act of fasting tomorrow uh, as, a, as a church? Well, so, so three things. First of all, then, what, what the book of Acts says to the place of fasting itself. And that's almost answering the question, which is a very important question. Um, and I know that Christians, through the ages, have fallen on different sides of the question. But is fasting for the church today? the place of fasting? Is there a place for fasting in the church? If you become convinced that fasting is not meant to be for New Testament Christians or for believers, um, or, yeah, New Testament believers, then it's very hard for someone to convince you um, to do it, perhaps, and certainly to convince you that it's something we should, re we should request of our church corporately, something that we should practice together. Um, and that's not... Um, that's not an irrelevant point, because it is true, and this is speaking very, um, almost, you have to speak rather uh, restrictive, restrictedly here, but it's very true that the general thrust of the scriptures indicate that there are things that Christians may no longer have to do today which Christians in the Old Testament, if I can speak that way, believers in the Old Testament have to do. So when someone says, I'm not sure about fasting because I don't think, because I'm wondering, is fasting for a New Testament believer? That's not a statement that's to be frowned upon immediately. 
as some, um, some person who's lacking zeal or, or doesn't want to be committed to the things of God, doesn't want to be spiritual, no. I think that person is making actually a very reasonable, I'm not saying it's necessarily right, but a reasonable, you might say warranted observation as to the way in which the scriptures indicate that we are to acknowledge this kind of, if you want, discrepancy, difference between the life and the practice, not at its root, not at its essence, but almost, if you want, from an external perspective, but, but quite significantly so, there's differences between how the New Testament believer lives or practices, things he or she has to practice, and the things the Old Testament saints had to or, or had to practice. That is this acknowledgement that because Jesus Christ has come and fulfilled the law and is the fulfillment of God's covenant with his people, certain things in what we call the old covenant have given way. The shadow has given way to the fulfillment. The saint, we all agree, for example, that this is true, and we saw, you see this earlier in the book of Acts, for the, what we call the, the dietary laws of the Old Testament. A lot of the commands that you read, say, in a book like Leviticus about what God's people are allowed to eat or should not eat. And a lot of commands don't, don't, commands don't apply to New Testament believers today, right? A lot of the festivals, a lot of the, um, the holy days that apply to the Old Testament saints. In fact, almost none of them apply directly to the New Testament believers today. We don't have to um, keep any of the feasts. We don't have to keep the Sabbath. All these things don't apply to the New Testament believer today. So it's not, a, it's not an unwarranted question, especially because of what is admittedly, I will say, a sparseness. And I think that speaks to something as well of talking about fasting in the New Testament, in the Bible, in the Bible, but in the New Testament especially. In the New Testament, there is a heavy emphasis on calling us to pray. Maybe not the same emphasis on calling us to fast. As far as a direct command, you probably have our, our Lord's words, when you fast, in the Beatitudes. But not many other commands to fast. What you have in the book of Acts is an example of a church fasting. It doesn't, which is not without um, significance. It is significant that we see the church fasting, but we have to place that significance uh, within its, 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 uh, its, its limits, as it were. So it is an important question to ask. That being said, I think my suggestion is that from reading these passages in the book of Acts show us that even after Jesus Christ had risen and fulfilled the law and the veil had been torn in two and Christ is the fulfillment of the temple and prior to chapter 13 and 14, we've already started to see some of the most developed, it will be developed further, admittedly, but some of the most developed um, interpretations and understanding of the relationship between Christ and the old covenant. You take a sermon like the sermon of Stephen, right? You, you see what, what, uh, how, how, how Stephen addresses, uh, addresses the, the, the Jews and the sermon that essentially gets him killed. And you see how this, 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 this understanding of the discontinuity and the continuity between the old and the new covenant is something that is already coming into the fore. And the church has already begun to reflect on what applies to 
the Jews and not to the Gentiles and so on and so forth. And, but even with that realization, there is still the practice of fasting. So it doesn't seem as though what's happening in the New Testament church is that with the arrival of Christ um, and with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at the, at, at the day, on the day of Pentecost, there's been felt that there's a need to do away with fasting any more than perhaps you might say there's a need to do away with praying. So in that sense, fasting continues to be relevant for the church, even in the new covenant. So maybe something else to add to that is that if fasting then continues to be relevant for us today, maybe the meaning of fasting might be another reason why fasting continues to be relevant today. Now, in that sense, it's instructive to think of the words of our, of our Lord Jesus. Um, when he says to, his, uh, to, to the disciples of, of John, remember the disciples of John are questioning Jesus, uh, questioning Jesus Christ's disciples, he says, listen, your, your disciples, they don't fast. Why don't they fast? And these are Christ's words in Luke, in Luke chapter 5. Um, Jesus says, verse 34, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. And in, in, in that passage, what Jesus Christ reaffirms is a general biblical understanding of fasting that says fasting comes with the sense of mourning and longing. Fasting is what you do when things are not yet complete, when things are not yet full, when you, need, when you know that there's, you're still in the process and you're, 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 you're still, you're, you're looking for completion. And I say that because even though we stand on the side of eternity that has seen Christ come, Christ has come and Jesus has fulfilled the law and Jesus Christ has overcome death and there's a true sense in which the Bible says our lives are hidden with Christ. The Bible says our lives are above. In, the, in one sense, the believer is in heaven already. So in that sense, we can speak of the believer being complete and being full. But there is still this sense that we must speak in the same token that we have not yet arrived, to quote the Apostle Paul. There is still this sense in which we have not yet arrived in heaven. We haven't, we're still pressing towards the goal. We're still pressing towards glory. We hold both those truths in balance. It's in holding those truths in balance that we can make a place for fasting. It's in holding those truths in balance that, that we can say there is still a time for groaning. The Bible says creation is groaning. And so are we. There's still a time for groaning. And in as much as there's still a time for waiting on the Lord and waiting to be, to be filled, to be complete. So there's a sense in which the believer has to see themselves as complete. There's this sense in which the believer may see themselves as incomplete and, and you know, needing more. I imagine that, it, it, you might phrase it like this, there's a time that will come when it might be inappropriate to sing, draw me nearer, right? When faith has become sight, perhaps. But whilst we are here and we have not yet seen him, the longing remains. And if fasting was typical of this, if fasting was one way of confessing that I need more of him. I need to be closer to him. And I'm mourning the fact that things are not yet as they should be. 
then there continues to be a place for fasting in the church. So, New Testament, so, so our understanding of the covenants does not debar us from fasting, nor does our understanding of, you might say, eschatology, our understanding of, 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 of what's, going, what's happening in the end of the world, in the end of the ages, the fact that Jesus Christ has come and has risen up into heaven, that doesn't negate or, or, or stop us from fasting. And so the place of fasting continues in the church today. Right? And in the corporate life of the church, Acts will indi- seems to indicate that this wasn't just a fast by an individual, but a, a fast that was done corporately. Now, to be sure, I don't know that it's clear that every single member in the church did so. Uh, at least from Acts chapter 13, the indication seems to be that the, the leaders agreed to come together and fast. But it was corporate. Now, there's a difference between how it happens here and how it might happen, say, for example, the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were some mandatory periods of fasting. Not many, but for example, on the Day of Atonement, there was, the people were required to keep a fast. Uh, so there's a few mandatory fasts in the Old Testament where you're told you had to fast. I don't think, there's, there's no example of that in the New Testament. And so would it be, is, would it be proper for a, for a church to bind someone's conscience by fasting? I don't think so. But there is certainly a place for believers coming together to fast. Voluntarily, yes. Willfully. So no one who doesn't agree to fast will be placed on the church discipline here. Yes. I don't think so. Probably not. Depending on your reason, to be fair. But yeah, probably not. So it's not forced on the congregation. But there was something about the unity of the church in doing this. Them coming together to fast. So there's a place for the... There's a place in the life of the church for fasting, in the life of the New Testament church for fasting, in the life of the, pe- of, of, of the church who have seen Christ come and rise again and ascend. There's still a place for fasting. And also, there's a place for it in the corporate life of the church. There's a place for fasting in the church that doesn't necessarily um, contradict or go against the liberty of the Christian. So Christians can fast together corporately. You know, it's not simply, not necessarily that it has to just be, you know, an individual choice. You can fast individually if you want, but it's not right for us to consider the church fasting together. I don't think, I think the book of Acts suggests otherwise, that there can be corporate, a corporate coming together of Christians to fast. And so we, uh, I I suggest we can with, we can with with a a freeness approach this act tomorrow, convinced that it pleases the Lord at points for his church, his, his church to come together in fasting. But what's the point of fasting is the next thing to do. So the place of fasting we see. What's the point? What's the point of fasting? Well, according to the book of Acts, at least, what do we see here? You might say that fasting is almost a foil for prayer, for, for intense praying. And what both these two significant chapters in, in, in the book of Acts that speak about fasting, chapter 13 and the other, other passage in chapter 14, the point of prayer seems to be, sorry, the point of fasting seems to be it, 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 it creates the, the space for, for prayer. It, it, it's a mark of a desire to give a more, um, a more to, to give yourself to a more intense season of prayer. And, and that might be something to learn about the nature of prayer, that there are seasons and times that demand a more focused period of prayer. 
that, that prayer can be varied. It should be varied, but it should be varied. That is, there are times for short prayers. But there are times when we should persist in prayer. There's times when we, 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 we pray only sporadically, perhaps, if you want, over an issue. But there are times when there should be focused, set-apart time for prayer. And, you know, um, it may be that we need to ask ourselves, when have we known special times for prayer? Special seasons for prayer? Special, you know, what, what, what is called, when have we sensed that, okay, we, this, this needs a bit, more, a bit more labor in the place of, of prayer? So, and, and fasting seems to be one of those, those things that happen in the Bible where men and women recognize that there is a need for a more focused period, season of prayer. That's, that's, that has to be true for the Christian. That's true for life. Sometimes we, sometimes we have to react to you know, a sense of spiritual warfare. We have to react to um, certain, maybe you might say, aggravated big sins. Sometimes we have to react to a, a very big weakness. In, in, in particular, in the book of Acts here, it seems to be that there is a reaction almost to the necessity, the need that the church has for direction when it wants to make major decisions. Chapter 13, it seems that they're praying as they're about to send um, Paul, and Silas, uh, Paul and Barnabas on, on, the, on the missionary journey. In chapter 14, they're about to make decisions that will impact the life of the church, choose elders. And so they say there's a need for focused prayer because we need to know what God is. We need to make sure that we've, we've soaked these decisions in prayer, that God is leading and God is directing us. And so one of the things that then fasting is for is for the church to have more focused time, a more focused time of prayer when it's about to make, when it's making major decisions. When it requires, you might say, specific type of empowerment to, um, to, uh, to, to, to do God's will or to accomplish something that the church believe, believes God is, call, God is calling it to. I'm not saying this only happens when there is fasting. I'm saying fasting is one of the means by which this allows, allow, by, by which the church, uh, which, which allows the church to do this. So... I'm not suggesting that people who do not fast or who are not fasting cannot also or should not also have intense, intense times of prayer. Of course, a church can be one, one about to make a, a major decision and they might, they might give themselves to seasons of prayer, intense seasons of prayer, and they might not add fasting to that. Um, but fasting is one of the means by which a church may separate themselves into that. And so what fasting might do is bring to our minds, our mind's eye, the urgency of the work ahead of us. Fasting tells us that there is an urgency about gospel work. There is a, there is a, there's an urgency for us to seek God's help when we do the gospel work. Um, fasting might, might, might help, help us remember that um, this work that we do requires divine empowerment. That comes through praying. Fasting might allow us allow that to just allow us to be reminded of that. When we when we feel ourselves denying ourselves of food, 
is. We say, why are we doing this? Because as a church, we are, we are we're wanting to find focus on, on our great duty to serve the Lord faithfully and to do so through praying. And fasting might allow us to do that, to, 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 to recognize that. So that's something about the point of fasting. I think fasting is, again, a, as I said, a fall for prayer. It, it's, it's what the ch- a church embarks on when he wants to give itself to intense praying um, because it needs God's direction. We want God to direct us. We want God to lead us. And so we, we, we're given specific time to prayer. And the last thing to say is about then the, the power, of, uh, the power of, of fasting. What's the power of fasting? Well, the power of fasting is really connected to the power of praying. Power of fasting is in what you might call the power of praying. What's the answer to the power of praying? It will be the answer to the power of fasting is that God hears his people, both in chapter 13 and chapter 14, as the people of God pray, they receive direction from God. He leads them. He answers them. So fasting is not, is not some instrument by which we, uh, we can twist the arm of God or force God to, um, to, to hear us, force God to do what we want. That's not what we're trying to do. We're not twisting God's arm when we fast. Um, we are... When we fast, we are believing God's promises that he will hear us when we pray, right? And we are asking God to prove himself. We are asking God to do what he has promised. And God answers prayer. He answers when his people pray. He he completes the work that he has begun in us. That's why, that's why we fast. We fast because we know that God is at work in the life of his church. God wants to do things in the life of his church. God has promised to do things in the life of his church. He's promised to keep us. He's promised to keep us united. He's promised to bless the preaching of the word. He's, ble- he's promised to open the eyes of the blind. Um, he's promised to um, open the ears of the deaf. He's, he's promised to give men and women new hearts. Um, and one of the ways by which God accomplishes that is by responding to our praying. And so we fast because we want to, we want to call God to fulfill his promises to us. We fast because we know that God answers when we pray. And very often in this fallen world, we are so, we're so busy, if you want. Uh, very often in this fallen world, we are so distracted by um, so many things that are going around us, distracted by pleasures, distracted by responsibilities, that it's a privilege to have fasting to bring us, to humble us, and to to, to make us sober, uh, and make us remember that um, we are what we are only by God's grace. That man does not live by bread alone. That if God doesn't help us, no one else can. That we need God. We need his grace. We need his power. And fasting is, a, um, fasting is then a means by which God prepares our mind to do that. To call on him in prayer. And God's promise to his people... 
when um, they fast um, from sincere hearts and when they, they pray to him in so doing, is then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. Amen.